Hey church, welcome to Frontline Community Church Podcast. My name is Cody Mahaffey and I'm the connections and group pastor here at Frontline in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So our mission here is simple, to see zero people unchanged by Jesus. So whether you've been following Jesus your whole life or your journey has just begun, we hope that this message will help draw you near to the person of Jesus. Be challenged and encouraged by his word and be moved to action. We hope these next few moments are a blessing to you and equip you to see who God really is and who you really are in him. Amen. Thank you, Blake. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. How you doing? You guys comfortable? Okay, good. If you're watching with us online, it's great to have you joining in with us as well. Uh, we are in week number two right now of our Christmas series, which is basically building up and building up to what Blake just talked about, our Christmas services that are going to be happening on December 23rd and 24th. And we're, we're calling this series, it's kind of a play on words, we're calling it Captive Liberator. And what, the reason we're calling it that is because we're looking at the Christmas story, the story of Jesus' birth, the incarnation, uh, through the lens of what Jesus came to do. Jesus actually said from Isaiah 61, he said, I came to set captives free. So we're celebrating that Jesus is the captive liberator. He's the one who sets captives free. But also it's a play on words because the way that Jesus came to liberate us is he also came as the captive who liberates the story of Jesus' birth, the story of the incarnation is that Jesus actually, the way he came to liberate us was he joined us in our captivity. He joined us in our prison cells, our self-made prison cells of brokenness and sin and darkness that we find ourselves in. And he came to do that because he was the only one who had the key to unlock the door from the inside. And so really Christmas is a time where we celebrate that Jesus came to come into our prison cells, into the midst of our lives, to the places that we need liberation to unlock the door because he had the key from the inside to do so. And so what we're doing each week of this series is we're just asking the question, where do you need liberation? Where do you need Jesus to bring greater freedom in your life, greater freedom in the day-to-day -day experiences that you have. And so we're just exploring that from this incredible passage of Scripture uh, in Isaiah 53 over the next uh, few weeks. And so to get us into what we're going to be talking about today, I'll just tell you a quick story. Uh, years ago when my boys were younger, our son Andrew was probably about seven years old, and my wife was at home with our boys, and all of a sudden she hears Andrew downstairs like moaning in pain. Like he's making these pitiful, like crying noises. And so she gets the other kids, you know, situated. She runs down the stairs and she finds Andrew laying face up on the ground with a broken, shattered lamp right next to him. And he's got blood all over his face. And so you can imagine, you know, as a parent, you know, this moment of panic happens. I mean, there's this unexplained tragedy, right? So she goes over, she gets him on his feet and she's got a question, right? What happened? And so with blood streaming down his face, Andrew begins to tell this very elaborate story about how he was just laying there on the ground and the lamp jumped off the table and broke itself on his face, <laughs> which raised some questions for her. But again, there's blood running down his face. This is not the time to like have a big debate, right? So she takes him into the bathroom and she takes a warm washcloth and she begins to like clean the blood off of his face. And as she's cleaning the blood off of his face, she realizes she can't find any cuts. There's no wounds. And so she says, Andrew, I can't find where the blood's coming from. 
And it must have been right about that moment that Andrew realized he was in trouble because he just went, oh, thanks, Mom. I'm feeling so much better. I appreciate it. And he tried to, like, walk out of the room. So she grabs him, brings him back, sits him down, and finally the whole story came out. And, and the, here was the truth. The truth was he was playing downstairs and he broke the lamp. He broke it. But when he broke the lamp, he realized nobody heard it. Like nobody came running down the stairs. Nobody was yelling from the other room. And so he thought to himself, however a seven-year-old thinks about this, you know, it's better to be seen as like an innocent victim of a horrible tragedy, right, than just to be seen as a guilty person. And so what he did is he went into the bathroom where he knew we had a leftover tube of fake Halloween blood. This is a true story. He literally did this. He takes the Halloween blood, spreads it on his face, runs back over and lays down next to the lamp and just begins to moan and make these, you know, pitiful noises. <laughs> it was all a lie. <laughs> just a, all a giant distraction. Now, the reason I tell you that is because that's kind of a picture of what happens to us and, and, and what we do and how we respond when we encounter unexplained tragedies in our lives. Here's the thing I know about you, and it's, it's true of me, it's true of all of us. Uh, every single one of us has in our lives unexplained tragedies, tragic events that have happened that just come out of nowhere, take our breath away. Maybe it's a cancer diagnosis of a loved one. This past week, I um, went to visit two different people who I know from Frontline who are in the hospital who are fighting cancer right now. And then tomorrow, I'm actually going back again to the hospital to visit a third person. There's just been so much like sickness and so many of these just, you know, sometimes like the, these things just come out of nowhere. These unexplained tragedies happen. Maybe, uh, maybe it's the loss of a job. Maybe you have a job that just disappeared without any sort of explanation. You find yourself just like suddenly trying to figure it out. Maybe a relationship suddenly ended without any kind of warning. But when we experience these losses, whatever loss it is, all of us experience these kind of things where we're left kind of wondering, you know, how do I respond to this? How do I respond to like tragic events? And here's what I would say. Underneath every unexplained tragedy in our lives, there is a question that we ask and there's a lie that we believe. Under every unexplained tragedy, there's a question that we ask, just like my wife with my son, right? Like, what happened? And I would tell you there is also a lie that we are tempted to believe. Okay, so the question that we ask is the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? This is, this is the question that theologians and philosophers, they call it the problem of pain. They've wrestled with over and over. I mean, entire volumes of books have been written about this. Put another way, if God is so good, why am I suffering? Why doesn't he step in? Why doesn't he stop it? And here's what I would tell you. If we don't have a good answer to that question when we experience tragic events in our lives, what happens is we either begin to question God's goodness or we question his power. We, either, we question his goodness we say, well, man, this must be happening because God just isn't really good. He must, you know, actually want this to be happening. He must want me to suffer. 
And even in our worst case scenarios, we kind of indict him. We say, well, God must be the one behind this. God is the one causing this. He's the one uh, causing me to suffer, and he's the one behind all of this. You've heard this. You've thought these things. So we either question his goodness, or the other thing that we do is we question his power. Maybe we say, well, God is good, and this is happening. Well, then the only explanation must be God's weak. He's powerless. You know, why even bother praying? Why even bother asking him? Maybe he, he's just unable. Maybe he's not even real. We question his power. And, and you know people and I know people who have deconstructed and doubted and walked away from their faith because they did not have a good answer to that question right there. You know them, don't you? Why do bad things happen to good people? That's the question we ask when we encounter suffering, tragedy, unexplained events where we just take our breath away. What I want to do in the next couple of moments, I just want to reveal to you the lie that we tend to believe when we're asking that question. And so uh, we're going to go right now to uh, the Romans chapter 3 in the New Testament. Paul is actually writing to the church in Rome there. And what he's doing here in chapter 3 is basically he's just quoting a whole bunch of scriptures from the Old Testament mostly from the Psalms and the prophets. And the reason he's doing this, he's trying to make his point that, man, this is all through the Bible. You just see this over and over and over and over again in the Bible. He's just quoting scripture after scripture uh, to make his point. And this is uh, what he's trying to say. Go ahead, if you would, that. As it is written, because he's quoting all these other uh, passages, he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. I mean, this is just brutal. He's, and he's quoting, all he's doing is quoting verses of the Bible. And if you keep reading chapter 3 of Romans, he just keeps going, keeps quoting person after person because he's building up to something. He's building up to his main thesis in verse 23, he finally gets to it. And he just says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody has sinned. Everybody has fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one who does righteous, not even one. And so if you kind of go forward there, under, underneath every unexplained tragedy in our lives, there's a question we ask, why do bad things happen to good people? But the lie that we tend to believe is that there actually is such a thing as good people. Paul says there's actually no one good, no one righteous. The only person who's ever been righteous is Jesus. Jesus came and he lived a perfect, sinless life. He's the only one that's ever been righteous. And so the problem with the question, why do bad things happen to good people, is that it begs an assumption that's a faulty assumption that there are actually good people. The Bible says there are none good except him. Now, now hold on for just a second. Uh, before you turn off the live stream, before you chuck something at my head here, I, I want to be really clear that, uh, that you do not hear something I'm not saying, okay? I'm not saying that I think you deserve whatever tragic event is unfolding in your life right now. Okay, I don't think that. What I'm saying is we live in a sin-fractured society, and we are fractured by sin as well. And so when tragic, unexplained events happen in our lives, it's not that we're being punished. It's those things are a byproduct of sin, of a sin reality we live in. 
And so what we really need to do this morning then is we need to just take a minute and we need to define what exactly do we mean by sin? Because here's what I would tell you. I think even in the church, I don't think we really understand what sin is. I don't think we really have a clear picture of it. We, we, don't, we don't understand fully what sin is. And so when we talk about sin, sin, what we tend to think is that sin is like my own personal bad behavior. It's my own personal bad decisions, my own personal transgressions. Sin is just whenever I, you know, do something a little bit wrong here. That's what we tend to think about sin. But when the Bible talks about sin, it talks about sin as being much more broad than that. Sin is not just like your own personal bad behavior. Sin is basically baked into the world we live in. It's, it's a part it's of the fabric of all of creation, of our own physical bodies. Every relationship that we have is tainted by sin. Even our physical bodies are, are damaged by it. It's like the Matrix. Have you ever seen those movies? It's just it's like everywhere. That's how the Bible talks about sin. Now, what we tend to do with that, we tend to kind of think of ourselves, you know, I'm mostly good. I'm mostly a good person. I just have these, you know, little bad decisions once in a while. That's how we think of sin. Or we think of our world like, no, our world's mostly good. There's just like a few bad eggs, just a few bad people. Almost like, you know, an ocean with just like a few little islands here. It's like, you know, we're mostly good, you know, but we've got these, you know, few little islands of bad things. The Bible says, no, it's actually the complete opposite of that. Our sin is like the ocean. And we have these little islands of like good behavior or good decisions. Little islands of good things that happen. That's really more the reality that we're in. Sin is just hardwired and baked into every single thing in our lives. And so the problem is we soften the truth about our situation. We soften the truth about our reality. We, we grab some fake Halloween blood and we put it on ourselves and we tell a great story of our own innocence and our own goodness. And we kind of try to highlight that. And we don't actually call it what it is. We, we, we don't acknowledge the very real truth of our world. We just kind of focus on the good. Um, four years ago, I got one of these, uh, a Fitbit, for Christmas, actually. It was a Christmas present. How many of you have ever had, like, a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or something on your body, on your arm? Okay, a few of you uh, that, that, like, you know, keeps track of your steps, keeps track of your, you know, your, all the good things you're kind of doing for your health. When I got that Fitbit four years ago for Christmas, I was so excited. I was like, yes, now I, I have this thing. I'm going to get so healthy in the new year. Like, man, I'm going to get in shape. I, I can, you know, track all my steps. I can track all these great things. And so I was super excited. That first year that I had that first Fitbit, I gained 10 pounds. <laughs> and I was so confused. Literally, I'm like, I'm wearing the watch. I was into Fitbit. Fitting every bit of this cake in my mouth, apparently. That's what I was into. <laughs> right? I'm like, how did this happen? Here's the problem with the Fitbit. What happened was suddenly I had this thing on my arm and it's, and it's measuring all the good things I'm doing, right? And so every day I'm going, wow, look at how many steps I have. Look at how many miles I've gone. That's way more than yesterday. I, I climbed more flights of stairs than I did last week. You know, uh, more calories burned. It's, it's measuring all these good things I was doing. The problem with the Fitbit was it wasn't measuring all the bad things I was doing to undo all the good things, right? It wasn't measuring late at night, you know, getting up to binge a bunch of food, right? By the way, if you struggle with insomnia like I do, and you're looking for a food to eat late at night to really help you just like stuff the feelings down, <laughs> peanut butter. <laughs> I'm here to tell you, 
If peanut butter is the best. If you're, if, I mean, there's something about it. You can just eat a whole bunch of it and it just helps stuff those feelings down and you can go right to sleep. It's awesome. That's what I was doing. And so literally those 10 pounds did not come off until I finally got honest about all the bad stuff I was doing to negate all the good stuff. And not just, you know, this Fitbit was just sort of giving me a false impression of my own goodness. We do the same thing. I mean, we're, we're laughing and we're, we're joking around about it. But, but in, in very, very serious ways as well, this happens in my life. A few months ago, um, I was talking to my, my coach and my counselor. Uh, and by the way, you should know that. As a pastor, I have a coach. I have a counselor who I meet with once a month. And I've been meeting with him for years now. He knows me very, very well. And a few months ago, I was talking with him in our session about uh, a rough patch that Carrie and I had hit in our marriage. By the way, you should know, even though I'm a pastor, I, I have rough times. We have rough times in our marriage. And so I was talking to him, and the way I was describing, I was using these words. I was saying, like, you know, we're, having, we're just having a struggle right now. You know, there's just a little bit of, we're having a challenge that we're, you know, we're trying to work through. You know, there's a situation that we're dealing with. And so I'm, I'm trying to explain it. And at one point, my counselor just stops me, and he goes, Brian, hold on a second. He goes, why don't you just call it what it is? You're sinning, and you are choosing to rebel against what God would call you to be as a husband, and your pride and your ego are swelling up and keeping you from acknowledging it. You know what? He was right. He was 100% right. That's exactly what was happening. But the reason I don't like words like sin and rebellion, the, words, the reason I would so much rather talk about my struggles, oh, you know, I'm having this challenge, and I would rather, you know, use those kind of words is because words like sin, words like rebellion, those words get a whole lot closer to the truth about me. That even at this stage of my life, after following Jesus for a couple decades, even as a pastor trying to be a good example for all of you and all that stuff, there are still in my life what I'll just call unconverted places. There's still these unconverted places in my life. Jesus has brought so much transformation. He's brought so much change in my life over all these years I've been following him. But there's still these places where I know what I should do. I know the right thing to do. I, I, I know what I should, and yet I can't will myself to do it every time. I'm not totally free. And you know why I can say that to you? Because you're not either. Every single one of you, every one of you watching online, you have unconverted places in your life too. Just like me. You're here in church today. We, we, we find like these good things to do. And we, and we kind of focus on that, just like the steps on the watch. So you're here in church today, but you're shaking off the hangover from last night. You're going to serve at the mission, you know, at some point here at Christmas, but you're, you're ignoring the problem in your marriage. This is what we do, isn't it? We have these unconverted places in our lives that, frankly, a lot of times we just don't even know what to do with. So the big question, now that I've thoroughly depressed you here this morning, the big question is, so what's Jesus going to do about it? What difference does Jesus make in all that? And so, the, well, the passage that we're looking at this morning, Isaiah chapter 53, it's almost impossible to overstate how important this passage is in the Bible. 
700 years before Jesus is born, uh, the, the prophet Isaiah writes four, the scholars call them the four suffering servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah 53 is the fourth and the most profound and powerful of the suffering servant songs, pointing to the person of Jesus and what he was here to do, what he was going to come to do being born. And so uh, 10 times in Isaiah 53, 10 times in this passage of scripture, uh, we are told that Jesus is going to come and he's going to take something on himself that belongs to us. He's going to take something that belongs to us and he's going to take it on himself. How is he going to liberate us? How is he going to do that? He's going to enter into our world and he's going to take something on himself that belongs to us. So we're looking at verses 4 through 6 of that passage today. And maybe we could just say some of these words out loud. But surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our he was crushed for our And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Now, here's the thing about this, these verses we just read. We love the first part of these verses, and we do not like the second part of those verses. Surely he came to bear our pain and our suffering. When we hear that, we go, thank you, Jesus. That's awesome. That's what I want you to do. These unexplained tragedies of my lives, uh, th these, these difficult, horrible things that have happened, these things I don't understand. Please take my pain, take my suffering. We love that part. But my transgressions, my iniquities, what's that? He, he was pierced for those things. There's two words, transgressions and iniquities. The word transgressions is very similar to our English word for rebellion. It's, it's when you know the thing you should do and you willfully choose to do something else instead. And then the word iniquity. The word iniquity, whenever you see it, is, is guilt for sin. Guilt for, for the bad thing that we do. Oftentimes, when we talk about sin and when we talk about iniquity and really define those things, uh, a lot of times the question people ask, well, is, you know, well, aren't you just shaming people right now? In fact, in woke culture, that's like a big no-no. I mean, like how, whenever you talk about sin, it's like you're, you're shaming people. Isn't that what you're doing? But actually, when the Bible, the Bible actually talks about guilt and shame as two different things. There's two different ideas there. So whenever the Bible talks about iniquity, it's talking about guilt for sin. So guilt is when we feel bad about something we did that we know we shouldn't have done. Guilt, like you should feel guilty if you've done something bad and you know it was bad and you did it. It's like, just like my son Andrew, right, when he broke the lamp. Like there's this, I knew I did something bad. Shame is when that bad thing that we did becomes an identity, it goes to the core of us. So, so follow me on this. I didn't just fail. I am now a failure. I must be just a failure. That's shame. I failed. That's sin. That's guilt for sin. I must be a failure. That's shame. So, so you sinned. That's true. That's guilt. Every single one of us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But your identity forever is not sinner. We, we, we tend to bring on, we take on this identity, and that's where shame enters our lives, where we say, that's all I'm ever going to be. This is, this is as good as it gets. This is just the way I am. Tomorrow is just going to be like today. I'm always going to struggle like this, this way. I'm just a sinner. That's all I am. 
Jesus came to liberate us from our shame and our guilt. When Jesus comes into our lives, when he comes into our prison cell, Jesus doesn't cancel people. He cancels sin. He cancels shame so that we can go free. He takes it upon himself so that we can be liberated. That, that's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope of who he is. And so it goes on from this passage in verse, the very next verse, it says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the guilt for sin for us all. So just like Paul was saying, all have sinned, all, everybody's fallen short. No one's good. No one's righteous. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. But the gospel message is that Jesus has taken all of our pain, all of our suffering from the broken, sin-stained world that we live in. He's taken all our transgression, all our iniquity on himself. He's come into our world, and he's unlocked the prison door from the inside so that we can go free. And that is good news. That's what we have. We have a captive liberator. So what do we do with that? What do we need to know about that? If you want to write something down from this message, if you want to take something with you, the thing I hope in you that you're going to remember as we turn this toward ourselves is just we, we have to understand we don't have a preventer. We have a savior. We don't have a preventer. We have a savior. So the problem is we want a preventer, don't we? That's, that's who we pray to, isn't it? We pray to the great almighty preventer. That's, that's really what we oftentimes want. God, will you just prevent pain from happening in my life? Will you prevent suffering? Will you prevent any other tragic event, any sort of unexplained thing? Will you prevent that from happening? And then oftentimes, even we become Christians and we say, God, uh, you know, why haven't you prevented me from sinning? Why do I still have this struggle in my life? In fact, some people won't become a Christian because they're like, man, if I become a Christian, then I'm going to have to be perfect. But Jesus didn't come as the great preventer of pain and suffering. He didn't come to prevent us from ever messing up or ever sinning again. What Jesus came as, he came as a savior. In other words, he came to cancel it all. All of it, our pain, our suffering, he came to render it completely devoid of any power in our lives. Our transgression, our sin, he came to cancel it all. Jesus doesn't cancel people. He cancels our sin. He cancels our suffering. He cancels our pain. He cancels those things in our world. That's who he is. Way better than a preventer. He is a savior. He is the captive liberator. One of my most vivid Christmas memories uh, was the Christmas that my grandpa died. I've shared this a uh, number of years ago here. When I was eight years old, uh, my grandpa, was my dad's dad, was a huge figure in our lives, was always, you know, around, always in our, in our lives. In the month of December, a couple weeks before Christmas, he had a massive heart attack and shocked our whole family and died. And so my parents were thrust into this like whirlwind of grief and, and loss right, right there before Christmas. And, you know, having to figure out the estate, you know, and then having to figure out like a funeral plan. And family members are calling and coming in and trying to figure out all this stuff. And, and what I remember about that year, in the, in the month of December, because my parents were just so in this whirlwind, there were no Christmas decorations in our house. 
We didn't have a tree that year. There was no lights. There, was no, there were no presents. And, and my mom was carrying the pressure, the burden of this, because she knew she, they hadn't shopped. They hadn't gotten any Christmas presents. She's literally thinking as it gets closer and closer to Christmas with all that they're dealing with, you know, man, are we going to get to Christmas Day and we're not even going to have any presents for our kids? And so I have this memory of um, coming home from my grandpa's funeral just a few days before Christmas, it's nighttime, and we're coming back from the cemetery, and my parents are just exhausted. They're just completely gassed. I remember we pull in our driveway, it's dark, we get out of the car, we go up to the front door of our house, unlock the door, and open the door and flip on the lights. And when the lights come on, the entire house is just lit up, decorated. And there's a tree it's been put in the house and it's been decorated and lit and there are presents overflowing from underneath this Christmas tree in this house. I literally have this memory of us just like standing in the living room of our house just in shock. And so for, for myself at eight years old and for my seven-year-old sister and my five-year-old brother in that moment, we had an explanation, right? Santa! Santa came early. Santa, Santa must have come early. But, you know, as an adult, looking back on that now, I'll, I'll tell you the truth is actually so much better. So much better. And I can't imagine the power of that moment must, must have been like for my parents standing in that room that night. Here's the truth. We had a friend named Larry and Larry had a key. And so what happened was while we were at my grandpa's funeral, while we're in the midst of our worst grief, our worst pain, Larry lets himself into our house. And at his own expense, he decorates this whole house. He bought these presents, wraps his presents, sets up a tree, sets it all up in this beautiful, extravagant act of love. Do you see it? Do you see it? That, that is Christmas in the incarnation. That's the gospel message. That's what Jesus did. Jesus was born into this world. He entered our prison cell. I don't know, if, if you're going through some sort of unexplained tragic event right now, if you're walking through some sort of tragedy, if you're asking the question, why is this happening, God? Why is this happening? Maybe you've got an addiction that you just can't shake and no matter how hard you try, maybe you're here this morning just coming off of another round of failures and inadequacy. You have a friend who has a key. Do you see it? Jesus, at not just the expense of his money, the expense of his life took our pain, took our suffering. Surely he bore our pain and our suffering and he was pierced for our transgression and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We are redeemed. We are set free. We're liberated. Do you need a friend like that? Do you need the friend who has the key? John Stott a great theologian said this way more poetically than I'm saying it right now. He said, sin is you and me substituting ourselves for God. Salvation is God substituting himself for us. 
He's the captive liberator. So um, we thought about how to uh, close out this service and you're going to notice we have members of our prayer team that are uh, standing um, and are moving and standing right here on both sides of the wall and then also on, on the banner, underneath the banner. And then we've got plenty of space right up here up front. Um, and so I want to talk to two people as we close here and, and we're going to respond and, and maybe... Um, Maybe what needs to happen is maybe you need to invite Jesus into the prison cell with you in whatever it is that you're facing right now. By, by a time of prayer, we're just going to engage in a time of prayer here. We're just going to invite him in. And, and honestly, this wasn't even what we were planning on doing. But this past week, there has just been so many, we've just heard so many reports of so many people in this church just going through really difficult, horrible things, unexplained tragic events, sickness, uh, sudden deaths, things that have just been happening. We just said, maybe we just need to clear some space and just invite the hope of the world, the captive liberator into this with us. And so two people I want to talk to this morning. The first one, if you're experiencing pain and suffering right now, if you're walking through some, some unexplained tragic event, we already said bad things don't happen to good people because there is no such thing as good people. But the only question that remains then is why do bad things keep happening to saved people? And the only explanation has to be is because God has a purpose for it. He's accomplishing something. He's doing something. But we've got to invite him in to the prison cell with us. We've got to invite him in. And so the invitation for you this morning is to trust him with your pain and with your suffering. Maybe you need to go to somebody, uh, one of our prayer team, and just say, here's what I'm going through. I just need Jesus in this with me. Maybe you need to come up and just kneel down right here in this space that we've got and just say, Jesus, I need you in this with me. Second group of people we're talking to this morning. Maybe you're in the midst of struggling through some level of transgression and iniquity. You've got an addiction. You've got something that's pulling at you, some way in which you know you failed. And you're, and you're done looking at the Fitbit and only focusing on the good stuff. And, and you're looking and you're going, man, this isn't something I can fix on my own. This isn't something I can do on my own. Maybe this morning what you need to do is you just need to actually just own up. That's, that's the invitation. Own up to your transgressions and iniquities. Call it what it is. Name it and invite him into it. And here's the most incredible, beautiful thing about Jesus. When we, if you, if you go to someone and say, this is what I'm dealing with, I need prayer. If you, if you come and you kneel and you just say, Jesus, this is where I'm at and call it what it is, name it for what it is, invite him into the prison cell with you. Jesus doesn't cancel people. He cancels sin. He cancels guilt. And we, we go free. That's who he is. So would you do this with me? Would you stand in the room? And we're just going to uh, close in prayer. And even as, I'm, as we're praying right now, if you're ready, you can begin to move. You can, you can come up here and kneel down. You can go to one of our, our team members. Jesus, we just come to you this morning. We know that you are who you say you are. You're the captive liberator. You're not the great preventer. God, forgive us for when we try to indict you for things that have happened in our lives, when we make it your fault, when we tell you that, it, you know, this is unfair and we just allow ourselves to believe that lie. We come to you this morning and say, you are so much better than a preventer. You are a savior. You are a liberator. You don't cancel people. You cancel sin. And that's what we need. So do it. God, do it.
these spaces in our lives, God, where we don't know where to go or what to do this morning, we just say we don't have the answers and we don't need the answers. We need the one with the key. So come in, Jesus. We entrust ourselves to you. We ask you to move. We ask you to speak. We ask you to accomplish your purposes in, as only you can, and we trust you in that. Take our sin, take our suffering, take our transgression, take our iniquity. We give it to you, Jesus. Surely you came to bear it. Surely you were pierced for it. You were bro broken and crushed for it. So we entrust it to you in Jesus' name. We hope this message encouraged you to know who God is and who you are in him. If you want to take a next step, visit frontlinegr.com slash next. We look forward to connecting with you there and we'll see you back here next week.